Welcome, friends. This is Historical AF. I'm Kina. Just, just took a bite. A, I just put a chicken nugget in my mouth. <laughs> I thought that your intro was a tiny bit longer. <laughs> Rachel, put the nug nugs down. The nug nugs are being removed from the table. Well, I'm sorry. I thought your intro was this much longer. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. Keeping that in. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I just ate a delicious nugget. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> we are two oh. history podcasts here to deliver some morbid and funny historical space nugs you never knew love you it. needed in your ear holes i love so, it nugs on nugs on nugs <laughs> that sounds like a dream <laughs> i am considering you guys morbid just because i know what you're doing and it gives me anxiety so i'm loosely interpreting it is certainly anxiety inducing yeah. to actually yeah. place yourself in the positions of the people we're going to be talking about this week. Yeah. If you put yourself in their shoes, it it's will terrifying. literally make you throw up. It's terrifying. Yeah. We talked last week more about the existential crisis of are we alone in space? Are we not alone in space? Black holes, all the things that could happen. And I was like, space is yeah. so scary to me. <laughs> I don't no, I agree. Why. My husband is a space nerd. Like he's a, he's a total like space nerd, knows things about black holes that you, like a normal person shouldn't know. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't understand how it doesn't scare you. Yeah. Because it's so scary to me. The unknown, yeah. just the darkness, the nothingness. It's terrifying. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> it's yeah, beautiful and it's so interesting to see especially now the photos because our technology is getting so advanced it's so cool mm -hmm. like i recently saw that new hd pluto photo yeah. and i'm like i remember in the 90s when it was just a blur and a planet <laughs> yeah. like and it's so beautiful I was like, yeah she she flexing because she's showing <laughs> yeah. off she, she glow up like hello yes. pluto <laughs> glow up she has that good contour now yes but it's also terrifying which no it's completely terrifying i don't know if i would ever go to space but given no, the that decision to ever blow up on earth or go to space maybe but yeah okay so if it's like life or death yes i'm going <laughs> to space to save my life or whatever but <laughs> if this is wally yes if it's if it's yeah if it's wally but if it's Elon is inviting me onto his private, you know, space <laughs> yeah. to circle the planet for fun and not doing it, like that's yeah. that's the most terrifying thing mm -hmm. I've ever heard of. That was no, not exactly. my jam. Early in Alex and my relationship, he had mentioned, you know how I mean, sometimes they offer those trips to just random citizens or right, you know, to like live up there for ten years or something. He's like, I would 100% do one of those, and I was like, uh, and this is early in our relationship, so I was like, even if this works out and he's like yeah okay <laughs> even if we're yeah i'm still going to space okay well all right at least i understand right off the bat so i mean no yeah. guarantee now we've been together for like five years i would like to say that that's no longer his answer but i feel that it could very well be i'm sure it's my <laughs> husband's too <laughs> <laughs> he's so funny because he acts so brave but we went to that it was epcot i think at disney where you have the mm -hmm. space simulator he was just mm. screaming the whole time <laughs> Because you oh have to work God. together. And I'm like, push your button. I was like, we would not do it in space. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am not going to crash today. Oh, my God. I love that. It was fun. Even that I gave me that. anxiety because it shakes. And I was like, I'm just going to close my eyes like a dork. <laughs> I just can't All right. Well, then take deep breaths as we are talking. <laughs> Center yourself. Be one with yourself. Yes. And I do like space things. But I just, again, it 
baffles me that a bunch of metal can skyrocket you into space and just so many things can go wrong. And I don't yeah. like that. Yeah. And no, essentially definitely. an explosion is responsible for launching you into space. Yeah, like, yeah. Don't like it. <laughs> have you guys been to any of the space centers? No, I don't think I have. No. Uh, you guys should road trip and we should all go to Houston. That'd be okay. I love this. I love it. <laughs> so let's get to the anxiety inducing stuff. Oh, before we get started, oh. uh, remind everybody who you guys are in your podcast. Oh, I'm oh just gosh. assuming yeah. everybody knows, but just in case. Yeah, we are the Hashtag History Podcast, and we cover history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. So we've covered things like Chappaquiddick or the Salem Witch Trials or the Hindenburg Disaster. We have done a Jack the Ripper episode. We do cocktails every week. We tie them to our theme or the topic of the week, and we do a fun cocktail. So, for instance, we recently did an episode on the 1916 yeah. shark attacks. I was going to say 15. The 1916 shark attacks, and we did a cute cocktail. It turned out to not taste very good, but it was so cool. It was made with blue curacao, and then on top was a floated shot of raspberry liqueur. It looks really cool, so it looked like there was blood floating on top. So we always try to tie the cocktail into the topic whether it be the overarching theme or you know the name of where the thing happens or whatever all right well now let's get anxious yeah let's get anxious everybody so we are talking this week about apollo 13 which was the third spacecraft of the apollo missions that was meant to land on the moon however when an oxygen tank exploded on the way to the moon, the crew had to instead loop around the moon, returning to Earth a week after they took off. And if you're familiar even minutely with this incident in history, you also know that this is the incident where we get the iconic phrase, Houston, we have a problem. The Apollo missions or the Apollo space program, it began in the early 1960s. 60s, and the specific mission of Apollo 13 was to land in the Fra Mauro area of the moon, which is this crater that's on the moon. What NASA was wanting to do was show off that they had achieved precision landing, and they also believed that the lunar samples in this particular area were different from those collected during the Apollo 11 and 12 missions. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the three astronauts on Apollo 13 were Jim Lovell and Rachel, you're going to have to correct me if I'm pronouncing any of these wrong. So there was Jim Lovell, who was played by Tom Hanks in the movie, Fred mm -hmm. Hayes, and then Jack Swigert. I got a thumbs up for pronunciation. <laughs> Woo! Um, Swigert wasn't originally supposed to be on Apollo 13. It was announced only two days before the launch that one of the backup astronauts that the entire crew had been in contact with had actually contracted measles from his kids oh, and no. subsequently exposed the entire crew to it. This wasn't a concern for either Level or Hayes because they had both had the infection as children. And we know that measles is one of those illnesses where once you get it, you build up the immunity and then you never get it again. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately for Ken Mattingly, who was the original third Apollo 13 crew member, he had never had the infection before and therefore did not have immunity to it. So... Although Mattingly would never end up getting sick, they couldn't risk the potential of him exhibiting symptoms while in space. So oh, God, last minute, yeah. they had to swap him out with lucky number three backup crew member Swigert. 
I want to very briefly breeze over the layout or the floor plan, if you will, of this spacecraft, because it is important to the story before we dig in. But don't worry, it won't get too technical, (laughs) because most of that would go over my head. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there was a command module, which they would call the Odyssey. So that's probably mostly how I'll be referring to it. That was where the crew of three were housed for the most part, and where all of the accommodations were. It was where the primary control panel was, and so on. It was attached with somewhat of an umbilical cord, if you will, to the service module, which was where the fuel was stored and also served as a place for extra storage. So this service module was designed to detach from the Odyssey prior to reaching the Earth's atmosphere, where it would burn up. And then finally, we have the lunar module, which they would call Aquarius. This was the lander craft that actually landed on the surface of the moon. So this module could house two people. And then the other remaining crew member would stay inside the command module while the other two took the lunar module to the moon's surface. This vessel was similarly designed to detach from the Odyssey before reaching the atmosphere and ideally just burn up as it descended to Earth. And just a little spoiler alert, it's the service module where all of the shit is about to go down. (laughs) Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. So on April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 launched. But according to NASA's own website, just five and a half minutes after liftoff, the astronauts on board felt, and I quote, a little vibration. One of the engines, you know, (laughs) this is the start. (laughs) One of the engines in the second stage had shut down prematurely, but within seconds, the ground control back in Houston was able to recalculate and figure it all out. Beyond that, the liftoff was considered a success. One of the coolest things to come from this mission was three days into the trip, the crew did a live television broadcast in which they gave the American public a tour of the lunar module while they were up in space. So I just think that's like so cool and something that I would have totally nerded out about at the time. Oh, yeah. And I think we talked about this that actually not a lot of people watched that initial broadcast. At this point in time, space, the space race and stuff was kind of like, Eh, old, like news. old news yeah, yeah. exactly it, exactly what you just said not a singular major network picked up the broadcast which is just amazing to me but at this time like you just said Leah, like americans didn't want their evening tv shows interrupted by some astronauts in space people were probably still true <laughs> i think that you are right but i would hope that somewhere is going to broadcast it because I will be watching. (laughs) But yeah, at this point, Americans had already accomplished their goal of putting a man on the moon before the Soviets. So no one really cared anymore, Mm -hmm. which is really sad. Yeah. Only minutes after the broadcast, though, the crew started noticing problems within the ship. One of the pressure sensors looked as if it was malfunctioning. They were able to MacGyver the situation, but not even two minutes after resolving that, the crew reported hearing a loud bang within the spacecraft. So remember, oh, this spacecraft is essentially like a barrel. So that that noise echoed throughout the whole chamber. This occurred at exactly 10.08 p.m. Eastern Central Time on April 13th. Like, this was it's when- so funny. Like, boom, boom, boom. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And I'm just like, we've all had one of those days where like just <laughs> everything that could go wrong goes wrong. And I'm just imagining being oh. one of those crew members just being like, are you kidding me? <laughs> 
it's oh like when, when your car the check engine light comes on and then the radio stops working and then you start seeing like smoke coming out like it's like and, yeah, then, it's all the and then off in the distance something else is happening and you're like what the <laughs> fuck is happening oh, one yeah. of those things for sure that is crazy. I do wonder, though, like, even as much training and education and knowledge that these astronauts have, like, there has to be a realistic piece to them that's like, something could very well go wrong. Like, what we are doing yeah. is still sort of mm-hmm. magic, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I know that there's science behind it. To me, it's magic. <laughs> to me, the science and the math part doesn't make sense. So I'll just say they waved their wand and made this happen. That's why Rachel will never be an astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) And that is why I am here right now. (laughs) So after all of the series of unfortunate events is occurring, that's when the crew called headquarters and they said, Houston, we've had a problem. So just a side note, I don't know if you could really tell in the way that I said it, but it was actually the 1995 Apollo 13 movie that took the creative liberty of changing the now infamous line to Houston, we have a problem. initially when they called in they said houston we've had a problem yeah but they changed it in the movie and now that's the line that we all know it by the director said that he took that creative liberty because it made it sound like the danger was more imminent right houston we have a problem we have an ongoing problem it's happening right now we need some help as opposed to houston we've had a problem but it's cool now you know (laughs) (laughs) he liked he liked the urgency sense of houston we have a problem like what an interesting little tidbit to decide to change as a director right yeah seems like such a small thing but it's totally not like everyone knows houston no, yeah a problem yeah right it's just sure. amazing in yeah. a weird way it kind of changed history because everybody is going to think it's the movie version yeah definitely crazy definitely So the crew initially thought that perhaps they had been hit by a meteoroid. Meteoroid, that's really hard to say. Um, (laughs) What they would soon learn, however, was that the number two oxygen tank had blown up, disabling the light, the water, electricity, and terrifyingly, the oxygen to the crew. Oh, good. Everything you need to survive. Yeah. (laughs) Just the essentials. So this particular oxygen tank had actually previously been in the service module of the Apollo 10. They removed it to do some modifications to it. And then they actually damaged it in the process. I guess they dropped it. Like, oh my God. Like, I can't imagine being that guy, the guy that was like carrying it from, you know, into the lab and then just dropping it and looking around being like, well, maybe. So supposedly they fixed it, but even after retesting it at the NASA Kennedy Space Center the month before the Apollo 13 launched, the tank still wasn't performing quite right. NASA personnel were eventually able to MacGyver the tank into performing the way they wanted it to, but in a lot of roundabout ways, this meant that when the oxygen tank was placed in the aircraft, there were actually wires exposed within that, and if it sparked, it would set on fire. I know, yeah, I know hindsight is 2020, but like, Come on. There were exposed wires. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh so this oxygen tank has actually been referred to now as an actual bomb. It was literally a bomb just waiting to explode. And it kind of did. Like shortly oh. after this, 
the number one oxygen tank also failed. And then two of the ships, three fuel cells would fail. So we're just continuing on <laughs> with the shit show that is this mission. Oh, wow. Good yeah. Lord. So, I know these fuel cells were directly responsible for providing the electricity that the astronauts needed for hydration and water in the command module. It was only then 13 minutes after the initial explosion that level looked out one of the side windows and noticed that the spacecraft was leaking gas out into space. (laughs) While 200,000 miles away from earth. Okay, at this point, I would need to be sedated. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> how they managed to stay calm. Yeah. And oh, thus, the Apollo mission changed. The mission was no longer to land on the moon. The mission was to get those astronauts back to Earth alive. That was their mm-hmm. only goal. Oh, man, that actually, all of that just gave me goosebumps. <sighs> yeah. So just over an hour after the explosion, the flight director in Houston reached out to the crew and he said, hey, we're starting to think you all might need to make your way into the lunar module, to which Swigert replied like, "Uh, yeah, duh, dude. He reported (laughs) back to Houston that he and the other astronauts had already begun preparing to shift completely into the lunar module. So remember the lunar module, Leah was, you know, kind of giving the diagram of the ship earlier the lunar module is the landing piece of the ship that 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 was the component that was actually supposed to land on the moon this component this would become their lifeboat the command module had only 15 minutes of power left in it so the crew worked lightning quickly to transfer power to the lunar module where they would reside for the remainder of the trip home of the concerns associated with relocating to the lunar module oxygen and food fortunately weren't really one of those concerns because the lunar module was now never going to actually land on the moon it contained plenty of consumables for the crew to return home same for the oxygen what was of course concerning though was that well we have a few things first one being the lunar module was only built to house two crew members yeah so there's three men squeezing into this module and quarters were cozy (laughs) getting cozy second concern the lunar module was only built to survive for 45 hours they would need to survive another 90 hours to get the astronauts safely home the entire team back in houston now had to completely rewrite and test in the simulator how to get the ship back to earth So we have to remember this hadn't been the plan, obviously. The lunar module wasn't meant to serve as a navigation device. They were no longer on their planned trajectory. So they had to rework all of the math to determine how and when to burn the lunar module's descent engines. That's just mind-blowing to me. I I don't understand. Yeah, It's wizardry. I don't get it. That's your magic. People don't understand math. That's- you know what's funny too? My husband is a mathematician. Oh, <laughs> he's a he's I, a math teacher. I don't know how I that happened, but <laughs> I can't comprehend. Nope. So finally, of the many, many concerns, 
the lunar module did not have a heat shield. So it physically could not survive returning to Earth, you know, coming back through the atmosphere. What this meant was that they would eventually have to return to the command module in order to penetrate Earth's atmosphere. So what they had to do was basically shut down the command module to conserve its energy so that it could be used once they neared home. You know, kind of like when your phone battery is dying and you're doing everything to preserve it. Same kind Mm. of thing. Battery saver mode. Think about the timing of all of this. If the astronauts had actually made it to the moon and had they actually used the lunar module the way it was intended to be used, roaming the moon's surface, they would have used up all of that power and food and water it had to offer, and they would have died in space on their return home. No question. Yeah. In addition to conserving power, the crew had to conserve other things too. In order to make sure they could have enough water for the return trip to Earth, they reduced their daily water intake to six ounces, which as a chronically dehydrated person doesn't sound too bad to me. But in reality, (laughs) it's bad to like my average water intake. (laughs) <laughs> it's bad it's less than a cup okay that's pretty bad I, I was making yeah. fun of my sister once for not drinking much water and I'm like how much water do you drink and she's like you know how sometimes when you brush your teeth and you end up swallowing a little bit of the water I was like yeah she's like that's about it for the whole day yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be good I try to drink at least four of these a day which would be eight uh-huh. cups so yeah yeah I try They also had to drastically reduce their food intake. It's actually super typical for people to lose weight in space. Apparently, scientists haven't exactly figured out why that is. It's something about fat not settling in the body the same way in space as it does on Earth. In addition to that, astronauts aren't great about eating in space. Oftentimes, they have upset tummies from motion sickness. Or again, they just the way the food settles in the body in space is different than on Earth, right? They're just floating there Mm -hmm. so it makes sense their food is probably doing something similar and so you many times feel full long before you're actually full also there is a level of muscle loss associated with longer term space travel i don't know that that's what's to blame for this one Mm -hmm. having said all of that though the amount of weight the apollo 13 crew lost was a no pun intended astronomical (laughs) oh my god In total, the crew of three would lose 31.5 pounds, which is nearly 50% more than any other crew. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is a lot. That was not a very long time. It's not a long, and it's not, yeah, Yeah. we'll, we'll talk about how long the entire trip was, but 31 pounds in the amount of time that they were up in space is not, does not help me. (laughs) I imagine they're probably sweating a lot too, because they're being cramped and those outfits can't be very cool outfits it's it's amazing (laughs) that you bring up sweating because the very next thing i'm going to talk about is the temperature because that's something else to consider here (laughs) the temperature control for the lunar module that could keep the module at like a nice temperature was only sustainable for 83 hours with the return trip home taking an anticipated four days the crew had to conserve energy and suffer through temperatures as low as 49 degrees Fahrenheit. And so like just a reminder to everyone, freezing temperature is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Mm -mm, Don't like that. Mm -mm. I hate it. (laughs) In addition to all of this, Hayes ended up developing either the flu or like a 
kidney, urinary tract infection. It depends on which source you read while they were in flight. The logistics of getting these men home is, we've talked about this. It's it's way, way above and beyond my understanding. Like I said earlier, the lunar module was obviously never intended to be the module navigating the astronauts home. And also, obviously, this whole spacecraft was on a course that was set to place them on a very specific location on the moon. So the ground crew back in Houston had to crunch numbers and recalculate getting the spacecraft on a return home trip that would take them past the moon rather than landing on the moon. It's truly mind blowing that they were able to use a module that wasn't intended to be a navigating module to land somewhere else than it was initially intended to land. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. As the crew neared the Earth's atmosphere, they returned to the Odyssey or the command module and powered her up. At this point, the command module was soaked in water, though. There was condensation all over the windows and the control panels. But fortunately, none of the mechanics had short-circuited. It was an issue that both the spacecraft crew and the crew back in Houston were very fearful of. Luckily, that didn't happen. The one thing that went right. (laughs) Yeah. The one lucky thing. (laughs) Well, it seems Um, like a lot actually happened. Even though things exploded, it happened at the right time. Absolutely right. It's one of those really crazy, weird things about just if things had happened at all differently Mm -hmm. these men wouldn't have survived every time i think of this story i also think of the the martian that movie that came out with matt damon Mm -hmm. you know a number of years Mm -hmm. ago and i feel like space travel and all this kind of stuff is like 50 percent calculus or whatever you know math and figure that stuff out but it's also like 50 percent luck (laughs) gotta be really lucky Mm -hmm. and really hopeful that things don't go wrong Right. Yeah. So just four hours before they reached the Earth's atmosphere, they discarded the service module, the location where the explosions had initially occurred. Shortly thereafter, they also discarded the lunar module, the vessel that had kept them all alive for the past four days. And then as the command module entered the Earth's atmosphere, Houston began to freak out because radio connection was lost for four whole minutes which would probably feel like a lifetime yeah yeah but then all of a sudden they spotted the apollo 13 astronauts hooked up to their parachutes as they splashed down into the south pacific ocean just shy of six days after apollo 13 spacecraft had launched the crew was finally home safe wow Cool tidbit, President Richard Nixon awarded all three of these men the Presidential Medal of Freedom and also personally telephoned each one of their families. Oh, cool. The almost tragedy of Apollo 13 reinvigorated the public's interest in the space mission. As we talked about earlier, no one was interested in even watching the (laughs) televised broadcast of the men while they were in space. That was not the case anymore. Everyone was interested now. In fact, on April 17th, when the spacecraft was set to return to Earth, many employers across the country, at the request of the United States Senate, actually shut down their businesses so that employees and patrons could pray for the safety of the crew. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. So a thorough investigation was conducted following this incident in which they determined exactly what we've shared already that there had been an oxygen tank that was damaged in the process of modifying it and they still put it in the spacecraft even though it wasn't performing properly 
As a result of Apollo 13 spacecrafts thereafter all carried extra batteries, extra oxygen tanks in separate locations so they weren't all in the service module anymore and additional water storage. Like None duh. of the astronauts. Yeah, like duh, common sense things, but we have to have tragedy before we recognize common sense. And I think one of the greatest legacies of Apollo 13 is that none of the astronauts aboard Apollo 13 would ever fly to space again. Like, why would you? (laughs) Yeah, why would you? Why would you? But they definitely did not. And that's the story of Apollo 13. Yes. That is incredible. That is, it's so scary, but I've never looked at it from the perspective you know, different perspective of things did go right and they right. probably shouldn't have survived, but they did. Yeah. That's incredible. And and it is, it's definitely luck. Like we said, it's mm-hmm. luck. It's luck that that didn't happen later after they had already used the lunar module. But I, I do think that a lot of kudos needs to go to the crew for staying level headed, calm and yeah, level headed <laughs> and thoughtful and forward thinking. And then also to the folks like running all the numbers back down in Houston doing mm-hmm. wizardry, essentially kudos to all of those people that I can't even <laughs> imagine. You win this round math. No. I normally. <laughs> hate you but i'll give you this you win this one yes so thank you for telling that i did learn a lot like i said oh good i've known bits and pieces and when i went to kennedy's the one in florida right yeah kennedy they had some stuff set up about it little bits and pieces but it's just fascinating it's another one of those things with history where it's just if you put yourself in those shoes, it's just. I'd rather mine. <laughs> sure, I'd, I'd rather not as well. <laughs> I, imagine being one of those people. I would never be the person that's okay. We're gonna make it through this. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna blah blah. I'm like, I'm just gonna sit in the command module until we die, pretty much. You know, and I don't mean to be like a alternate negative person, but just like I don't see the light at the end of this tunnel. <laughs> Anybody that becomes an astronaut is on another level of human. I I was going through different, I could not decide what I wanted to cover first of all. So I I read a lot of stuff, but there was this (laughs) one guy, I can't remember his name, but they called him Gordo. And he was the first American to orbit space. Like Lizzie McGuire? (laughs) (laughs) But like they shot him up there. And at that time, everything was controlled by Houston and he lost control of the stability so he just calmly was like, don't worry about it, guys. I'll just do everything on manual. And they're like, you can't do that. Nobody's done that before. And he's like, no, I got this. So he just calmly took control of everything. And then he was like, oh, how am I supposed to reenter? Because if he went in too hard, he would blow up because you have yeah. to go into the atmosphere a certain way. And then yeah. he lost all radio to NASA. And so he finally was able to get a hold of somebody on his aircraft carrier who talked him through that and he used his watch to time the thrusters to get in. And then he landed and was like, see, I told you I had this just calm. How many times that man almost blew up. And he's just like, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to look at my, my watch. I'm, th- and- I'm seeing two very different sides of the story. The one side is <laughs> like, this is magic and he was brilliant and he had to time things out and blah, blah, blah. The other side of me is feeling the exact opposite. Maybe this is a lot easier than we all think it is. Anyone can do it. Right? Maybe. I and mean, now a lot I of think... them have managed it. So maybe it's not that hard. Ooh. 
Maybe. <laughs> and now that I think about it, on Drunk History, Colin Hanks played him. So it's like a Tom Hanks thing. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Family. Yeah. I love that's that. That's fun. I love Drunk History. I, I rewatch it pretty frequently. So. I feel like I'd love to know what their alcohol consumption is because I swear they must just give them like six shots in a row, right? Because those uh, people are like probably- falling out of their chair, drooling while they're talking drunk. Yeah. Or I'm like, like <laughs> yeah. Or, and that's what I think I remember hearing like the guy that is there for it, or the guy that's like kind of interviewing them, the creator mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah. He was saying like, we spend the first hour just applying them with alcohol yeah and then he said that there were, i can't remember who it was but there was one person that was like hey i pre-gamed before you came here too and they actually had to take him to the hospital from for, for they were like yeah oh you shouldn't have done that every time i watch that show it's like it's obviously super entertaining but i always think about the waivers and liability forms that these people must sign because they're not so oh. little tipsy they're throwing up drunk and yeah. telling a story about history while they're vomiting and how do they remember the story? Oh, like, yeah. Uh, that's the thing. I Do they have a script? Are they being I do fed? feel like, yeah. Even though they're all over the place, they do stick to the the yeah. main points pretty well, regardless of yeah. how drunk they are. Yeah. They have to impressive. have someone being like, here's, remember, this is what's next. And, and then Abraham Lincoln did this. Yeah. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. one about a woman and it was a woman comedian and she starts crying and she's just like, it's just so sad because people don't know her and she was so incredible. And I was like, that's how I feel about history. I'm like, how do people not know this? Always. That's how we feel after every episode. Yes. (laughs) Which I feel about some of the people I'm about to talk about. So. Oh, yay. Segue. Segue. I've been had enough to drink to cry, but I'm sure I will still get emotional (laughs) anyway. Like I said in the beginning, I knew you guys were going to talk about Apollo mission and it's anxiety inducing. So I thought I'd just do some fun facts. And then last week I talked about the first woman in space and I wanted to keep going with that. So I'm going to talk about some more fun facts about women and space. Yay. Yay. A little less stress spiral, a little bit more inspiration. Inspiring, empowering. I love it. Yes. Beginning with the 100 tampon song. Have you heard it? No. It's all over TikTok. Oh, yes. Yes. We, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. So it was actually Marsha Belsky. She's a comedian. And she performed this uh, song about Sally Ride, who is America's first woman in space. And mm-hmm. last week, I talked about Valentina Tereshkova, who was the first woman ever in space. And she does this stand-up special that was actually aired in 2020, which I didn't know. But you can watch it on Comedy Central. Highly recommend. I will link it in the show notes because it's so funny. But it went viral on TikTok. And I just had to Google this because I wanted to find out how true it was because it sounds so ridiculous. So ridiculous. And the title, by the way, is, quote, proof that NASA doesn't know anything about women. (laughs) And for Patreon, I'm going to play the song for you right now. I'm not going to play it for everybody because, you know, copyright or whatever. But it's so funny. Oh, Oh my God. That was so great. My cheeks hurt from smiling and laughing. I love that so much. What I love about it is, you know, that the guy that was like, oh, my God, she might need tampons is like (laughs) so proud of himself. But I also love that even in that setting of her doing that a comedy live show, you know, there was a guy sitting in the front row like, yeah, no, every man in there (laughs) fake laughing like, 
A <laughs> hundred? Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> exactly i love that part where she's like these are the nation's leading minds they're literally rocket rocket scientists (laughs) and literally not a single one of them asked anybody with a uterus how this works it's just incredible so great love it so picture it it's 1984 i am born and the world will never be the same (laughs) no i'm just kidding it's 1984 and sally ride had become the first american to enter space the year before and she was about to become the first woman to enter the atmosphere twice so she's getting ready for this new mission in a 2002 oral history interview with rebecca wright who was the coordinator for the nasa johnson space center history office at the time ride was asked what items nasa added to her flight kit because everybody got one that had like soap and sanitary stuff and she says quote this is insane. I remember the engineers trying to decide how many tampons should fly on a one-week flight. They asked, is 100 the right number? <laughs> and she replied, no, that would not be the right number. <laughs> so it's so funny. great because me, I'm a very uh, too nice and too generous of a person that I've been like, oh, thank you so much. That's, yeah, that, that'll be fine. Sure. <laughs> yep. And then she said, well, they said, well, we want to be safe. And she said, well, you can cut that number in half and still have no problem at all. <laughs> and this part made me cackle so hard. So according to National Geographic, the NASA scientists worked a really long time on this. They weighed the tampons. They Stop. argued whether they should be deodorized or if having a smell would be too strong for the space capsule. And they actually had a professional sniffer smell them yes and they also had a huge discussion about whether they should tie them together and all the men decided that that would be the best way because otherwise they're going to float away right no one thought how do you use them when they're tied and sanitary wise that cannot be hygienic that people scrubbing oh fingers all over your tampons God. i'm sure oh period havers everywhere are cringing because just the logistics alone but Let's circle back to the sniffer, right? I Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to that most important detail. I was like, is this a machine? Because it's NASA. No, it is a real person. A human <laughs> man named George. Who sniffed tampons. Yes, George Aldrich, who has worked as a chemical specialist for NASA for 44 years. Ergo, during the 80s, ergo, was the man sniffing tampons. <laughs> And he has a lot of glorious nicknames. One is Chief Sniffer. Others called him Nostril Domus. That's perfect. NASA knows the Master Sniffer, but he prefers the term Nasal Knot. <laughs> you can't even make this up if you tried. Is and this on says, his resume? I sniffed the oh, tampon. For sure. For I sure it is, sure. Rachel. I'm sure they were so proud of themselves. And I bet if they're all alive, they're still hearing the song being like, what's what's the problem? (laughs) Yeah, we did a good job. We sniffed them and we tied them together. Yes. Can you imagine like putting tampons in that someone has touched and tied together? Mm -mm. Nope. No. Like logistically speaking, if you are on your period that week, even if you have a hundred tampons in front of you, if they're all tied together and people have touched them, you can't actually use them. I mean, are you supposed to go? I mean, you know, the strings are super thin and stuff. Are you supposed to just like 
try to untie each one of them i literally wouldn't attempt to no i would not either i yeah no <laughs> crazy and this dude also says that he likes to be called a nasal knot because quote for several decades he has been using his nose for the common good of nasa stop it oh what? god yeah well a lot I mean, of it I had to do with smells on the space shuttle like if it would be too overpowering or sure. you know, stuff like that i was so. gonna say that actually does make sense to me not the sniffing of the tampons but think about like when you take mexican home in your car and then how it <laughs> smells like yeah. even for days later or when yeah. someone at work makes fish in the microwave yeah like oh, i yeah. get that mm. i wouldn't want to live in that for like six mm -mm. days yeah no. and he was like a literal chemist so he had other jobs but this is just the one that made me laugh the most. <laughs> so. Amazing. Anywho, back to Ride. So they were also worried that if she was menstruating, her emotions would be out of control. And so they weren't sure how to handle that either. You could cut the sexism with a knife. Mm. Even the media asked her if she cried under the pressure and whether she thought the flight might affect her reproductive organs. It. Yeah, it is amazing to me. It's not shocking, but it's just still, it's a it's a lot to think about. This woman doing something so incredible. She went to space. Yes, twice. She's brilliant. And then everybody still is only concerned about her uterus. It's just kind And a man and is which, never asked questions like no. that. Do you think this is going to affect your mm -hmm. sperm count at all? Or exactly. like, it's just such an outrageous thing to ask. It blows my mind. And I talked about it last week with, they did the same thing with her. And she actually, during this time, she was really private. But when they were going after Sally Ride about being emotional and stuff, she was just like, basically, fuck off. No, she's doing her job. She's good at it. Lay off yeah. of her. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Especially being a Russian coming to the American state. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. So NASA engineers apparently had a history of sending women to space with inadequate supplies, obviously. And in that <laughs> same interview, Ride noted that engineers had also decided that women astronauts needed other things. I feel like I want to take a guess. Oh, yes, guess. Are. are any of them makeup? <laughs> that is absolutely what it is. So she says, quote, the engineers at NASA in their infinite wisdom decided that women astronauts would want makeup. So they designed a makeup kit. You can just imagine the discussions amongst predominantly male engineers about what should go in a makeup kit. Stop. And here is a photo. Yes. It's got to be red lipstick and blue eyeshadow. That's what I'm counting on here. I mean, sure. it was the 80s, right? It was. <laughs> Makeup's going to be the last thing I'm thinking about. I just can't imagine being in space and thinking, I need to touch up on my mascara. Right. Right. It's wild to me. So you got lipstick. Mm. It looks like mascara. Probably blush. It's blush. Yeah. Yeah. Waste of space. <laughs> yeah. so right about this said quote it was about the last thing in the world that i wanted to spend my time in training on so i didn't spend much time training on it at all yeah the training of how to put the space makeup on stop so, yeah she didn't use her kit in other words she was just like i don't have time for this i need well, to learn how to use the robotic arm because that's my job <laughs> like, versus how to put this eyeliner on and give myself a you know a cat eye <laughs> in space yeah, and there was an astronaut, and I'm blanking on her name, that went up not long after Sally Ride, and she actually did the training because she said, you know, I'm going to be in space, you're going to take my picture, and if I'm not yeah. wearing the makeup, people are going to judge me. So I That's can get fine. that. That's fine. 
no judgment, but like yeah. let them make that decision. Exactly. <laughs> but it's just, just the fact assume. that instead of ensuring her safety or making sure she's well trained to survive space, they're like, let's make sure you have lipstick. I think it's pretty much what Leah just said. It's her choice and maybe they could have mm-hmm. saved time and training like hey are you gonna want to wear makeup in space no great no okay hey, how many tampons right. you need for a week you know 15 great here you go you know like yeah. Yeah. if anybody would just ask that's all they that's all they needed to do that's start with all a question they needed to do. and i found it really funny the nasa history office actually tweeted that quote but right about the last thing i wanted to do was have a makeup kit with the kit, which is now in a museum exhibit somewhere. But that's amazing. I, just found, I found it funny that NASA's leaning into it now. Like they're not, they're not hiding that. They're yeah. shying away from it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Probably not the greatest thing that they've ever done. But it was, like I said, unused, but it included eyeliner, mascara, eyeshadow, eye makeup remover, blush, and lip gloss. <laughs> that's so, You know what? It, you did just say it's like not one of the the worst things they've done. We did just talk about one of the worst things I would say they've done, which was putting a damaged battery oxygen, uh, oxygen, oxygen tank. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Knowing that it's damaged and putting it in a in a spacecraft that's taking off in a month. So, you know, you have that and then you have the tampons and the makeup kits. All bad decisions. <laughs> that's true. So women still remain a minority of those who have visited space. And in four decades since Ride's 1984 mission, of the 500 cosmonauts, astronauts, payload specialists, and space station participants who have been to space, NASA noted that just 65 have been women as of March 2020. Do you say 5,000? 500. 500. (laughs) 5,000. But still, I mean, 64 out of 500, that is a very underwhelming number yeah and that's us and russia that's just wow wow and the sexism sadly doesn't end with sally ride obviously in the the 60s william randolph lovelace the second what a name he was specialized in aerospace medicine he led the first study of the effects of space travel on women so starting out good and while NASA was running all these tests on men and preparing them for space, he decided he wanted to do a private test on women because he believed they were better candidates for space travel. Again, sounds great. But yeah. essentially, he says that women are smaller and lighter, so they require less oxygen than big, burly men. And he also believed that men are just going to be too busy doing the important work in space And they need women to fill those lower grade jobs, like answering the phone and assisting men in the labs. I, my blood just boiled. (laughs) When when did this, when was this stated? The 60s. Think mad men, but in space. (laughs) It's just very, it did, it increased my blood pressure when I read it. 100%. Nope, don't like that. So yeah, don't like that. <laughs> essentially, it's like a run-of-a-mill space secretary. That's what he wanted. He thought that was the great idea. Because that's I, all women are capable of. So exactly, exactly. Wow. Ugh. Anyway, we're gonna move on because that's infuriating. Okay. <laughs> and even now, the first ever all-female spacewalk didn't happen until 2019. And even the that, first, hit- say that one more time. The first female what? First all-female spacewalk. Space- 2019. 
2019. Yeah, there's been women in space doing spacewalks, but this was the first time that a whole, like, all women team went out. And that hit a lot of setback because they needed medium spacesuits and they only had one. So they couldn't go out together. What? Yeah. So they had to wait until they could get smaller sizes for the women to actually wear because the suits aren't necessarily made for women. So women that are smaller sizes are running into issues even today of not having something that fits properly. NASA spends millions and millions and millions of dollars. They spend money putting together a, a makeup kit you know, for space. Yes. Like they spent money buying a hundred tampons and for us <laughs> to have to buy feminine products. No, it's expensive. Yeah, Every time I buy a new large pack of pads, I'm spending $15. It's expensive. So like they mm-hmm. could afford to do those sorts of things, but they can't afford to do the research and the time and the money for, yeah. for putting together spacesuits. Yes. Yes. And this has actually brought that to light that they needed to do better. And so the first time that they were supposed to go out, they couldn't. So they actually sent one of the women out with a male colleague. So that ruined that. So then they spent a little bit more time working on it until they could send up enough suits for all the women to be able to do it. And a fun fact, I didn't know this. Spacesuits weigh approximately 280 pounds and it takes about 45 minutes to put it on. I, I knew about the time that it takes to put it on because I've watched like a YouTube video about that. I did not realize they were that heavy. Yeah, I do not like that either. But I guess <laughs> I mean gravity. Yeah, I was gonna say it's <laughs> not like you're picking it up. I mean, I guess there's a little bit maybe, but like yeah, yeah, floating. Yeah. yeah. But anywho, by October of 2019, the first ever all-female spacewalk did happen. It was conducted by Jessica Meir and Christina Koch. I think that's how you say it. And they were already best friends. So it was really cool that they got to do this thing together. So that's Oh, my gosh. That gave me goosebumps. I love that. Yeah, I love that, too. How cool. Uh, So last year, the extraordinary Katherine Johnson passed away at 101 years old, which is incredible to me. Yeah. Well, she... my shiro right oh i love her so much and there are so many amazing facts i couldn't pick just one so here's a bunch (laughs) yay she was a pioneering mathematician we just talked about math saving lives literally and she was Mm -hmm. one of the reasons a lot of people lived because she was so incredibly good at what she did she spent 33 years working at nasa where she paved the way for women of color and stem and she was responsible for getting Americans to space. If it yeah. wasn't for her, we what we know about space history just wouldn't exist. It's yeah. incredible. And she was really under-researched for a really, really long time. And it really wasn't until 2016 when the book Hidden Figures came out that people mm-hmm. really realized how incredible she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She now has a movie that won some Oscars and a Barbie. Oh, yeah, she has Barbie. It's really, it's really cute. I really like it. So in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, NASA hired women to do complex math work that computers do today. That's one of the things that's such a weird history fact to me. So, you know, the initial computers were people that were computing. Mm -hmm. And by people, it was generally women because it was considered. It's just weird the way that 
things have changed because it was exactly. it used to be considered that, you know, doing com- complex math equations was like low budget work or, or not low budget, low, low skill set work. Right. Yeah. That, so that work was given to the women because it's like, oh, this is just a meaningless task. Whereas now, I mean, we've talked about it all night tonight. I think we hold mathematicians in really high regard. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. amazing. It's basically magic. So it's just so funny <laughs> to how much things have changed. It's true. And also even today, math is considered a male dominated job. So it's it's interesting to see that switch because they thought women were better at it because women were more detailed oriented and accurate. But now today you find math, tech, computer jobs are mostly male dominated. Male dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. And Johnson was a prodigy to say the least. She graduated high school at 14 years old. Wow. And afterwards, she intended to study French and English at West Virginia State. But her professor, W.W. Schieflin, Clater, Clater, Mm. that came out really hillbilly, Clater, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) sorry, he was a trailblazing black mathematician in his own right, but he encouraged her to explore her talents in STEM instead. And she later said that it was always in the back of her mind that she might want to do math and research it, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until he encouraged it and saw that in her that she was like, yeah, I should do this. It's all to say, Um, like, good teachers can really change your life, you know? Absolutely. One thing that I remember about her, too, is when she was a a kid, she was, like, helping her older siblings with their homework. Like, they would, her older siblings would come to her for their math help. I just, oh, I love that. She's, like, such a badass and so Mm -hmm. brilliant. I love when people just have that innate knowledge, right, or that innate um, talent and skill. She obviously mm-hmm. was exhibiting it at a really young age. I, I, some brains just hit different. Uh, my, I, yeah. I can't even <laughs> contemplate what it must be like to be that smart. That just that, baffles me. We've talked about that a couple times on our podcast too. Like we did a recent episode about Alan Turing and just uh, oh, yeah. the way that his brain works is just like my brain will never ever function that way. And it's that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not being down on myself, but like it's just it doesn't it doesn't compute that way it's just so amazing mm. that some people have those abilities exactly yeah, yeah i have such a what is it right brain that's just oh i do too creativity <laughs> yeah i don't i don't yeah. have that logic so, yeah all that you know. math and science i love science i love learning about it but i yeah, can't we, i can't do the we math. believe in science here <laughs> yeah, that's true we do. We, yeah that's why the numbers the numbers and science is what kept me from doing that <laughs> Statistics nearly broke me in college. And after that, I was like, this isn't for me. Same. <laughs> that was the class that almost broke me too. That is yeah, super funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did get my bachelor's in science, which I find hilarious. But uh, yeah, did not do well. Amazing. Oh, great. <laughs> so, which I think it's hilarious because I have a BS in psychology. So <laughs> it just works out That'd that way. great. So in 1939, Dr. John W. Davis handpicked Johnson and two other black students, both men, for spots in the newly integrated West Virginia University. She was the first black female student to attend. Johnson enrolled as a graduate math student, but left school before completing so that she could start a family. And mm-hmm. then afterwards, she worked as a teacher, making only $100 a month. That is $1,000 today. That's, that is outrageous. That I, I can't even imagine being paid so little and and someone of her caliber too like i know that 
the people mm-hmm. that were employing her and probably even her students didn't recognize her brilliance. Like this is literally a woman that is so intelligent that her math skills are going to go on to save lives, put people into yeah. space and to save lives. And they're paying her a hundred bucks a month to, you know, I mean, to just not be at her skill set. Mm-hmm. I hope later when they realized who she was, they felt really bad about it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I and hope they, they did some retro pay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that too. <laughs> uh, so nearly 15 years later, Johnson started working for NASA because she was at a family gathering and she heard that they were hiring black women to do work as human computers. Mm-hmm. And it started as kind of um, a shortage stemming from World War II that they were hiring black women. And she's like, hell yeah, I'm there. And they hired her immediately because, again, prodigy. I'm sure there's probably like a test or something like, can you do math? And they were like, holy shit, she can do math. Let's yeah, <laughs> bring that in. And she was offered a position immediately. In 1958, NASA's Project Mercury was officially approved with the goal to put a man in orbit around Earth. In her role on NASA's space task group, Johnson calculated astronaut Alan Shepard's trajectory Johnson said on the calculations, quote, you tell me when you want it and where you want it to land and I'll do it backwards and then I'll tell you how to take off. So she was able to be like geometry. Like this this gave me goosebumps from my head to my toes. Yeah. You tell me where you want it and when and I'll make it happen. And she did. It just, Mm. it, it. Again, it's magic. (laughs) But she was so accurate too. That her calculations is how brilliant. Brilliant. So the part that I find just like sweet karma, the paper that came from this marked the first time a woman wrote a report for the department. And Johnson would later say that her supervisor at the time, Henry Pearson, was not so happy to have a female author on the report. Although she did so well, eventually he had no choice but to accept her as a co-author, which Imagine being a man at NASA being like, oh, God damn it. I have to put a woman on here with me. It just oh. makes me happy that even in those times, like she fought with so much, not just sexism, but racism, segregation, everything. But she was so fierce. Every yeah. account is that, you know, there'd be a meeting and they'd be like, well, you can't go. And then she'd be like, where's the law that says I can't. And then they'd right. be like, damn it. Okay. Come on. Like, she just knew her worth. And I think that's one yep. of the things that I love her so much is that she was a genius and she knew they needed her and she I didn't think, take their shit. Yeah. You might touch on it. Like the bathrooms at NASA, the movie makes it out that like, it's the almost like the white savior kind of thing where it's the white yeah. guy that recognizes that, you know, the bathrooms are so far away for, mm-hmm. you know, that the black employees. Um, so he makes that happen. And, and, you know, like desegregates the bathrooms. But in reality, it was Katherine Johnson that spoke up and said, like, this is bullshit. Like, do you mm-hmm. want me at my desk working? Yes or no. And if you want me at my desk working, give me a bathroom that's not 100 miles away. I just yeah. she, she really she did know her worth and she spoke up to defend herself. And I, I can't even imagine how difficult there's just no way for me to comprehend, you know, that situation and just what it meant. Not just for her, but she paved the way for so many other people, too. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have been easy. I just, I love her fierceness. 
And it wasn't just the Mercury program that Johnson worked on during the Apollo year. She helped calculate exactly how the lunar lander on the moon's surface would go, which was also rotating on its own axis, which was different from anything they'd done before. So she was calculating so many different movements and she was able to help them rendezvous and dock with the Apollo command and service module. And it was a successful mission. She was one of the ones that helped with the Apollo 13 mission. Like you said, they had to scrap everything and come up with a new plan. And here she is with her math. being like, I got this. (laughs) I love her so much. (laughs) I know she's so inspiring. Mm -hmm. She's so inspiring because I think it's that like brilliance that we can never relate to. Right. Just like that. Like, but then there's also this element of, her character and her worth and her sassiness, mm-hmm. like these elements that maybe we could relate to if like they're inspiring. Mm-hmm. Cause I could be more like that. I wish I yeah. were more like that. I should work mm-hmm. on being more like that. He is a hero. Exactly. And she accomplished so much more during her time at NASA. She was part of a team that worked on the earth resources satellite. She later even contributed to the plans for the mission of Mars. She also helped foster the education of, a whole generation of STEM workers that followed her because of her more women, more women of color mm. want to be in STEM and Amazing. her g- genius propelled her to author a whopping 28 scientific papers before she retired in 1986. Wow. And not only that, but while she was at Langley's research center, she actually co-authored one of the very first academic texts about space, which literally means she wrote the book about rocket science. Like she literally oh, wrote the book on it. It just <laughs> she literally what? wrote the book. Yeah, li- she's so smart. She's so amazing. <laughs> so amazing. And in her role at NASA, people trusted her with their lives. John Glenn, the first American to orbit Earth, said of Johnson, "Quote: Call her, and if she says the computer's right, I'll take it." He didn't trust the computer. He's like, "I'm not going to land this thing until she says I can land it." And Oh, just, my God. That just that. now I think people probably don't comprehend because computers run everything. But yeah. this was the beginning of that. And, of course, you would trust a human. Well, if you yeah. had her, I guess. I don't trust any human with math. These days. <laughs> but uh, as accurate and as fast and as amazing as she was, of course, if my yeah. life was on the line, I would want her to double check the work, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I just find that fun that they all relied on her instead of a machine. And during her decades at NASA, she was awarded the NASA Lunar Orbiter Award, three NASA Special Achievement Awards, and so many others. She had another big mic drop moment in 2015 when President Barack Obama said, quote, Black women have been a part of every great movement in American history, even if they weren't always given a voice. As he gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Oh, my God. I know. I just, I love it so much. That's the highest honor a civilian can get in the United States. And then he said, in her 33 years at NASA, Catherine was a pioneer who broke the barriers of race and gender, showing generations of young people that everyone can excel in math and science and reach for the stars. Pull yourself together, Rachel. (laughs) It's so beautiful. It's, it is. I Uh, cried watching that. I remember when. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna watch that. I I feel like I'll cry if I'm actually. Yeah, watching it. yeah. It's 
but wait, there's more. In the mid-2016s, there was a new 40,000-square-foot building at NASA's Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, and it was officially named the Katherine G. Johnson Com- Computational Research Facility. And the formal dedication Stop. took place on the 55th anniversary of Alan Shepard's rocket launch, which she helped achieve. Incredible. There's so much more on her, and I will probably cover her more in depth at some point. But mm. I just, you can't talk about women in space and not talk about the women not, that made yeah. space travel possible. And there were yeah. so many other women at that time, too, as well. So the next yeah. few women are going to be more contemporary. So NASA engineer who, I don't know if you saw this, she announced that the Perseverance rover had landed on Mars in February 2021. So yeah. really recent. Yeah, uh, yeah, she made a lot of headlines. People were really intrigued and deservedly so. She's amazing. So, uh, Swati Mohan, I think that's how you say her mm-hmm. last name. She had immigrated to the United States from India at just one years old. And by nine, she was entranced by Star Trek. She just loved it. And I think this is the most adorable story ever. But she said, quote, I remember thinking, I want to do that. I want to find new and beautiful places in the universe. And she did. She said, so impressive. She completed a bachelor's of science from Cornell University in mechanical and aerospace engineering. And then she got her master's and PhD from MIT in aeronautics and astronautics. Who's that smart? Honestly. Yeah. And now she has worked on the Mars 2020 project since almost the beginning in 2013. She is currently the Mars 2020 Guidance, Navigation, and Controls Operation Lead at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. My mind is blown. (laughs) Just going from a little girl watching Star Trek to literally leading the mission to Mars. That's just incredible. I love it so much. And then speaking of the Mars 2020 mission, Diana Trujillo is the flight director, and her story is also pretty incredible. She was born and raised in Colombia and moved to the United States at 17 years old with only $300 in her pocket. She knew no English at all. She worked as a domestic worker to raise money for English classes and eventually went to college for space science and aerospace engineering. She became the first Latina woman admitted to the NASA Academy. And then in addition to directing the Mars 2020 mission, she's also hosted NASA's first ever Spanish language broadcast of planetary landings. So now she's paving the way for Spanish speakers in NASA. I love that. Oh, I love so that. So inspirational. I, I love them all so much. <laughs> so Christina Koch, who we mentioned earlier, she did the spacewalk. She also set a new record. So two months after the spacewalk, she broke the record for the longest time in space. Mm. So on December 28th, she was on her 289th day consecutively in space. (laughs) Nope. That's a long time. I'm good. Nope. Why? Okay. And then she stayed until the following February, bringing her record to 328 days, which has only been broken by Scott Kelly, who I think is a senator now, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I think so. His was 340 days. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just push it out to 365 people? Right. (laughs) For it. But yeah, you're so close. Well, I feel if I remember correctly, people that have 
been that long and maybe it was Scott, maybe it wasn't, but like they start to get sick from being up there. Your sleep cycle. I was watching a little bit about what it's like. Your whole rhythm's off sleep wise. You can't, there's no lighter day or anything. So your body Mm -hmm. starts kind of shutting down. Yeah. And you lose muscle mass. It's just everything's really difficult. But this also February 2020. So I'm sure there might have been a thing like we need to get you here. You're probably not going to be able to get here. So I can't imagine that helped. (laughs) This one's a little sad. So Krista McAuliffe, she was selected out of 11,000 teachers to be the first teacher on a space mission. And that's unfortunately the ill-fated Challenger incident that exploded 73 seconds after launching in 1986. And all the astronauts were killed on board. And that exhibit at Kennedy broke my heart. It was so well mm-hmm. done, but it's just that had Tragic. giant photos of everybody and their their story, who they were, and it was just. Mm-hmm. And that also just changed space. It really did for everybody because you know, a lot of projects were stopped, and it was mm-hmm. really difficult for everybody. For the program was that she would film lessons in space that would be shown in classrooms throughout the country. And though that never happened, her <laughs> lessons really live on and she inspired a lot of other educators. And they do a lot of school lessons now from the space station. Mm-hmm. So she inspired a lot of that. Oh, so sad. Yeah. Which if you it's go on the NASA website, you can see the lessons they do today and they're just adorable. Like, how do you brush your teeth in space with like puppets cute. and stuff? It's so cute. Yeah, you yeah. can access all that for your little tiny humans. Cute. So, yeah, the thing with her too is like having her on that spacecraft was an effort to reinvigorate the public's yeah. interest in the space missions. And unfortunately, they got what they wanted. So many people were watching yeah. when the Challenger exploded because of her. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. So May Jemison went into orbit aboard the space shuttle Endeavor in 1992 and became the first African American woman in space. She is also a trained medical doctor, served as a medical officer in the Peace Corps, and currently runs BioSentient Corps, a medical technology company. So another person who is inhumanly smart. I don't. Yes. <laughs> like she. Wait, she's like a medical doctor and an astronaut at the same time. Yeah. I keep like kind of comparing myself to these people and feeling really bad, you know, coming up short. But then I'm like, wait, they're chosen for a reason. These are like yeah. the yeah. cream of the, you know, they the are superhuman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of themes. Like a lot of the women we talked about, she graduated high school early. She became college at Stanford at 16. Oh my God. Just Incredible. Brilliant. And she's another one of those people that to me just makes no sense because i like to use the excuse like i did earlier like oh, i'm right brain i can only do that well she was also a dancer so she could use oh, both sides of her so brain she was artistic and yeah creative she as well it, exactly so she was a genius at both things a lot of times if you're really good at one thing you're not the other but right. she was brilliant superhuman And of course, she faced a lot of roadblocks in her dreams of pursuing science, you know, being a woman and a woman of color, of course. And when she wanted to be a scientist as a kid, teachers told her, no, you don't just be a nurse. Can you imagine? (gasps) Like, it's like a 180 from Katherine Johnson, that teacher being like, no, you should be in math. This 
this teacher saying, no, you, you can't do that. You should. Well, I think it goes exactly to what you said earlier that like Catherine Johnson only pursued what she did because she was encouraged by her educators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What if Mae Jemison had, had listened to her educators Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't know her. We wouldn't know about her because you know, she, she would have taken a lesser known, lesser public path. Exactly. And she's, (sighs) she's paved the way also for so many people in STEM fields. It would change everything if she hadn't have gone to space. It's just, it blows my mind. She later founded the earth. We share an international science camp that encourages science literacy for all which I just find so Mm. incredible. And one of the fun facts I found is that she's actually afraid of heights, but she said it didn't let her stop her from going to space. She relied on quote, the strength of her ego to push her forward, which (laughs) I love that so much. I love that too. And I, I can actually relate where like, I am, I'm very fearful of heights. Like even Mm -hmm. getting more than just the first two steps of a ladder is scary to me. But I also, there's something about like, Rachel and I have been on the Tower of Terror or the, what's it called now? The Marvel Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy ride a couple times together. And there's something about being in that, not helpless, but it's out of your control. And I think yeah. I could see how that could be as an astronaut. I could see like, it's out of my control. Let me just sit back. And if it happens, it happens. Like, yeah, you know? Exactly. Be like, I'm not going to let you see me nervous. So yeah. That, that would be where the ego comes in. Just being like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to show that I'm scared. We're just going to brace ourselves yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. So shortly after Courtney Ritz was born, she was diagnosed with a rare form of eye cancer and lost her eyesight completely by the age of five. But oh. as a child, she dreamed of being an astronaut. And though she's never been to space, She's been an integral part of NASA since she started working there in 2001. She later worked as a web accessibility coordinator, ensuring that NASA's internet materials were available to as many people as possible, regardless of any disabilities. Mm. Oh, love that. I just love that. I just, again, a lot of these people, they're not letting anything stop them, but they're also helping pave the way for so many other people. Right. I just love that. Amazing. In addition to being the first woman to graduate from the University of Virginia's engineering program, Kitty O'Brien Joyner also became NASA's first female engineer in 1939. Wow. Which is way earlier than I expected women to yeah. in the story. And during her 32-year career, she specialized in the mechanics of wind tunnels, including testing new aircraft designs prior to being used in flight. Eventually, she rose to the rank of branch head of the facility's cost estimating branch, Office of Engineering and Technical Studies. So that's also just in the 30s for a woman to head a department. Unheard of. Yeah. And by that, I mean, I never heard about this. I hadn't either. (laughs) Blew my mind. And I did also hadn't heard of this. She was known as Mother of Hubble. Nancy Grace Roman was one of the first female executives at NASA where she was instrumental in establishing the Hubble telescope. Oh, yeah. She was also NASA's first chief astronomer. At the time when very few women worked in NASA, she developed and budgeted several programs that helped launch three orbiting solar observatories and three small satellites. During her career, she made multiple crucial scientific discoveries 
including that stars are made out of hydrogen. Huge. Can you imagine being the first person to discover something like that? That's crazy. I can't. I can't imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I actually uh, know. So that's just a bunch of random women. There's so many more, but I, oh man, it just makes me excited for women in science. Yeah. I thank you. That was very inspirational. And while our our story was anxiety inducing, yours was very (laughs) like inspiring and makes me just feel a little happier and have a brighter outlook on our future and women in science. No, it's all about balance. But yeah, STEM fields (laughs) are just desperately trying to have more diversity. So it's just really uh, cool to see that a lot of people have been you know, dealing with probably the worst shit ever to be STEM fields have to be so hard to be in and to know that you're so outnumbered. But instead of being discouraged, they are making sure that things are easier for the next generation. And that's just amazing to me. Yeah. Amazing. That was super inspiring. We, you know, like we shared at the beginning, our podcast is all about talking about, you know, controversies and corruption and stuff so we cover a lot of tragedies on the podcast but every now and then we do cover a woman in history and we've talked before those are always almost our favorite episodes just because we walk away from them feeling so empowered and that Mm -hmm. is totally how I feel right now after all the women that you talked about and I, I find that too especially how many women have been kind of deleted or yeah pushed to the sidelines in history and how they can be rediscovered. Like Catherine Johnson was right. mostly unheard of and now she's essentially a household name. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody has heard of her now and that's mm-hmm. just incredible to me. So I, I just love, love it. And same thing I with like that. the few that I had never heard of. I'm just glad that people are starting to dig those up and give them the credit they deserve. Mm-hmm. I love that. Just, well, thank you guys. Remind everybody how to find your podcast. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at uh, hashtag history underscore podcast, or you can find our website, which is hashtag, hashtag history dash pod dot com. Sweet. Thank you guys for coming. I, I think you guys might be the podcast that's been here the most. So if you are, I'm going to make you like an award or something. <laughs> I want to thank Leah and Rachel from hashtag history for joining me again. It is always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I always have such an incredible time. So thank you again for coming. If you'd like to watch this episode and any of the episodes prior in video form that's unedited, blooper filled, then you can join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And there's tons of benefits. The tiers are from $2 to 20 and you get more benefits for each tier that you go up. And some of those include letters, postcards, merch, extra episodes. And speaking of Patreon perks, we have a really cool event coming up. A lot of us, you know, had had a lot of depression shopping over this pandemic, and we started buying crowns. I don't know why. Probably because they're less than $20 on Amazon, and they're pretty, and they make you feel powerful. So we decided that why not wear our crowns, get dressed up, or not, whatever you want to do, it's fine, and just Zoom and have a tea party, like classy bitches that we are. So we're going to do that. It's going to be the last weekend of every month. One will be in the morning and one will be at night. There'll be two times to join. That way every time zone has an opportunity to join. 
And it's going to be really fun. It's just a way to, you know, see some human faces and unwind after the month. And speaking of Patreon, I have a shout out. So I want to thank Emily, who is the newest Brilliant AF patron, for joining the fam. I am so excited to have you. I can't wait to get to know you more. And since you're a Brilliant AF member, you get a postcard. And I get so much joy out of making these. So I find the most Texan postcard that I possibly can. They're usually huge because everything's bigger in Texas, you know. And then I draw this whole scene on the back about how aliens didn't build pyramids. And I make it as weird as possible, naturally. And I just, it brings me so much joy to know that this is going to pass through so many hands especially because we're on opposite sides of the country from each other. So it's going to go through a lot of post office people, a lot of post people, post office people. And I hope that they're all like, wait, what? (laughs) That makes me happy. So thank you for making me happy, Emily. So this week, I'm going to be kicking off a contest, a drawing, if you will. I have a tote bag that has the new logo of If you know, you know, with a pyramid and Rasputin's dick jar and a cat licking its butthole. (laughs) It's so classy. Anyway, I got a tote bag and I'm going to give it away to somebody. So all you have to do is review the podcast and then send me something showing that you did it. That way I know. And you're entered. And if you're a Patreon, you're already entered once. And if you review, you get entered twice. So double the chances by being fam. If you'd like to buy merch, that's shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF. And you can be on the lookout on social media for any kind of specials. Recently had 15%. There's another 20% coming up. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at historical AF pod. All right, my friends, I'll see you next week for space part three with the pot with special guest encyclopedia obscura. Okay. Bye.